Welcome to this podcast about Hilton Head Island and the Low Country. I am Jay, your host, and in this episode, we explore pre- and post-revolution agriculture and how it grew the local economy. We will learn about rice production, Sea Island cotton, and one of the most famed and infamous crops in South Carolina history, indigo. We will find out how indigo got started here, how difficult it was to manufacture the dye, and what ultimately caused the American indigo market to collapse as we travel down 278 to Lighthouse Road. Rich Thomas is back with us today to talk agriculture on Hilton Head and the surrounding low country. Rich is the author of Backwater Frontier, Beaufort County, South Carolina at the forefront of American history. And he is also the owner of Hilton Head History Tours here on Hilton Head Island. Rich, welcome back to the show. Jay, it's always uh, always great to be back on your show and uh, really eager to see it expand and grow as it seems to be. There were a couple of primary crops grown in the area before and after the American Revolution. What were they and where were they grown? Agriculture generally for South Carolina was probably the single most powerful force in terms of determining the economy, the demographics, the politics, and the history of South Carolina, frankly. If you think back to the start of the colony or the start of the province, South Carolina was originally envisioned as kind of an agrarian paradise. And the Lord's proprietors, the Barbadians and the people in the West Indies who were out of fields to grow crops for food because they were using all their land for their very valuable cash crops. All of those people looked at the land in Carolina, the province of Carolina, as being the place where hopefully the food would come from, the breadbasket of the West Indies, uh, so to speak. And when settlers came here and started farming, it was uh, very much of a struggle. You know, they were able to raise corn, you know, shown to them by the Native Americans. Cattle and hogs were able to be raised, squash and beans also coming from the way the Native Americans were cultivating them at the time. But it was really, uh, it it was pretty much of a struggle. And then People started to figure out maybe we need to experiment with semi-tropical plants that seem to grow well in a climate like this. And they tried things like ginger and silk, dates, olives, even almonds, and had pretty disappointing results with those, especially in the, in the, in the soils of the Sea Islands. A little bit inland, they were able to plant tobacco as kind of a makeshift staple crop to start creating some export income until other suitable commodities could be found. And uh, there was some good success kind of in the Midlands and the Uplands uh, of the colony with tobacco. But then finally, in the 1690s, uh, about 20 years after Charleston was first settled, rice was experimented with in the Low Country. And although the results were not too promising on the sea islands because of the lack of uh, really good fresh water supply in, on those islands. There was good success upriver, about 30 miles inland on some of the rivers that flowed into to the coast. And so there was an established rice culture really by about 1710 to 1720. And by about 1740, largely because of the rice culture, about two-thirds of South Carolina's population were African slaves that had come in. 
And then then we would jump to kind of, you know, the crop of indigo. So rice is established. That becomes the main cash crop of the province. And then when it becomes its own crown colony, that's still the main cash crop of the colony. But in the 1740s, uh, you have indigo coming in and coming from a West Indian origin, uh, seeds that were experimented with by a number of people. Eliza Lucas Pinckney is usually given the, the lion's share of the credit for having cultivated the first successful crop of indigo in South Carolina, but she did have help from some of her neighbors, one of whom was a French West Indian man named Andre DeVoe. And the ability to process and harvest indigo started to become a real tangible thing for planters at about 1745. What's interesting is there there had been some previous knowledge of indigo in South Carolina by people who were planters in the colony. And as early as 1706, one of them had actually written about the process of extracting the indigo from the plants in the fall. But that was pretty much just written about on a local level in his own journal. And then it was republished in 1745 in the South Carolina Gazette. That knowledge publication in the Gazette is one of the things that really fueled the expansion of the indigo market, as well as the generosity of the people who had been successful in in growing it up to that point, who shared their knowledge and, and even shared their seed with with other planters. You know, it became it became a contributor of more than a third of the total export revenue of the colony of South Carolina prior to the revolution. So it was something that created a lot of significant wealth, especially in the coastal areas, because for some reason, where all the other crops that had difficulty growing in the sandy and salty soils of the Sea Islands, indigo grew like a weed. Rich, where did indigo originally come from and what was it used for? Jace believed that indigo came originally from indigo and even more specifically from uh, what's today called Sri Lanka or the island of uh, Ceylon. And it was a dye processed there then that was acquired by Arab traders and taken to the Near East and um, what today we know as the Middle East. And that then got into the hands of the Roman uh, trading system, and the Romans actually uh, called indigo, they called it indicum. The Latin word was indicum, and then later English spellings were indico, and then finally indigo. So it was prevalent throughout the Roman Empire, and if you think about all of the, the emperors, they would wear these incredibly deep purple robes. And that deep purple was made possible through the combination of indigo with red, redder dyes that created the, the purple depth. But it, although the Romans had it with them as they conquered various parts of Europe, and even after the Roman rule ended in Europe, the, a lot of the Europeans had grown a similar product, uh, something called woad, W-O-A-D, which was produced a similar but inferior blue dye. And the trade guilds that were controlling uh, all of the commerce, basically, in Europe at the time, pretty much protected the woad growers until the late 16th century. In the late 16th century was when, you know, the attentions of the European powers started to look to the West as a source of supply for various goods. And then it became in the interest of the European states to have indigo be supported from their 
colonies as opposed to the woad be supported in the European states. And so that's kind of how indigo got into the mainstream commercial flow in the European countries and became such a, a product in high demand. Even though indigo was a large revenue-producing crop, it was planted in much smaller acreage than other crops. Why was that? And can you tell us about the process of making indigo? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the well, the fact of the matter was, it, it for a lot of planters who had accumulated the wealth to plant large parcels of land, they were focused on rice as a primary crop. So indigo is a little bit of an add-on. It also had some disadvantages. It had a lot of expense to set up an indigo uh, processing uh, capability. The labor intensivity meant that a lot of slaves were necessary at the various stages of uh, cultivating the indigo. But for the even initial cash layout for indigo farming really revolved around the the, uh, the processing facilities or the sets of vats that had to be built. The rule of thumb was that about one set of vats was required for every six to seven acres being cultivated. And so you've got about 30 sets of vats if somebody wanted to cultivate 200 acres of indigo. And that was a lot of expense in terms of wood and material and and you know, fashion metal that would be part of the gear assembly for the processing facility. And then just the labor intensivity of the crop, too. It was extremely important that fields were weeded thoroughly and continuous attention was given to the weedings. The number of cuttings per season meant that you had people in the field three times as often as you would have in the field to cultivate other crops that had really one growth per season, where especially in the Sea Islands, the typical growing season would produce three cuttings. And then you had the number of people that were required. So to 10, 50 acres of land growing indigo, you needed a minimum of 15 slaves just to tend those 50 acres. And then you needed about 25 slaves to process the cuttings from those 50 acres. And so really those two reasons uh, kind of focus the cultivation of indigo into smaller plots of land than other crops that were being grown at the time. And then then the processing of it, it really depended upon two chemical processes, fermentation for one and oxidation as the second one. And there was a series of vats that were arranged at different levels. And there were two of the vats into which the initial mixture, one of them, was it was created in one of the vats, and then it was drained from that vat into a, a vat at a lower level. And the first vat into which the materials were placed with water was called the steeper. And then the second vat into which the liquid from the steeper was drained was called the battery. And what happened in the steeper was that they allowed the stalks and the leaves of the plants to sit in water for a certain number of hours, usually some time around 72 hours in the sun until it started to acquire a consistency that the people processing the indigo knew knew meant that it was time for it to be drained into the next vat. And what was left after the steeping was called the liquor. They would also sometimes use uh, wooden stakes to muddle the, the stalks to increase the yield from the stalks uh, as far as the distillate that would come out later on. But the liquor that was left in that top vat was then drained into the second vat. 
at a lower level, and that was the battery. And the leaves and stalks were removed when that part of the process took place. And there was what remained was this uh, an opaque, uh, tending toward clear, what they called liquor. Uh, the fermented substance was was called liquor, and that was then agitated in that second vat with paddles or buckets that actually had holes in the bottom so that it could be raised and lowered, almost stomping on the liquid and, and letting it come out. But what it was doing was uh, infusing a lot of oxygen into the mix. And that was done until the liquid then acquired a bluish color. And sometimes uh, they would add a mixture of lime and water, the lime coming from burned, crushed oyster shells, and into that mix to deepen the bluish color in that in the mix. And then it was left to rest. The remaining liquid was drained to reveal what was kind of at the bottom of the liquid at this point in time, everything that had precipitated out of the mix. And it was a blue mud or a blue paste. And that mud was then scraped out of the vat into either cotton or linen bags. And those were then placed into a form a wooden form in which the remaining moisture in the mud was allowed to kind of drop out through the bags and through the uh, bottom of these wooden containers. And just before the mud would dry completely and get really hard, then it was cut into blocks or squares, kind of like you would cut brownies. And then they allowed it to dry completely. And the dried blocks were typically packed in uh, barrels, waterproof barrels for shipment, wherever they were going to go. It's my understanding that the indigo that came out of South Carolina was very high quality. Was it a valuable crop and how much of it were they shipping over to Europe? It's interesting. There's a, there's a debate about the quality of, of South Carolina indigo. It was, it was a good quality, certainly quality comparable to what had been coming out of the West Indies prior to the time it began to be grown in Carolina. So it was able to compete on an equal footing with the West Indian quality indigo in the beginning. But what then happened is that the West Indian supply for the textile manufacturers, primarily in uh, England at this point, the, uh, the supply for those manufacturers was basically cut off due to wars with France and Spain. Uh, the War of Jenkins' Ear with Spain, for instance, pretty much cut off the supply coming from the West Indies. And then King George's War really cut into the supply, which was a war with France, cut into the supply even further. That meant that the demand was still extremely high. The supply was diminished and into that void in the mid-1740s comes South Carolina indigo. Uh, there was a, a bounty, a state bounty, South Carolina bounty that was paid, which gave growers of indigo an additional number of shillings. I can't remember what it was per pound. And then to that, in 1748, the imperial government added their own indigo bounty, which gave even more money on a pound weight basis to the growers of indigo. So it was a very valuable crop. The margins on indigo compared to the margins on rice, if you're talking about a pound weight basis, were easily four to five times what they were. So even though you're growing on a fewer number of acres, you could get as much wealth out of indigo as you could with rice. One other thing about it that made it extremely valuable from the planter's perspective was that the growing seasons and the and the harvesting seasons for indigo and rice 
meant that you could typically use at least part of the same slave population that cultivated the rice to help cultivate the indigo. So you had a number of planters who were rice planters on the rivers inland and then on the sea islands where they also had land would be growing indigo and then they would shuffle their labor uh, force from one site to the other as the cutting and the processing of the indigo crops occurred during the year. Was indigo strictly used for cloth dyeing and textiles or did it have other uses? Well, it's primarily used for uh, textile manufacturing and dyeing. Some people used it as a medicine. It has certain properties that apparently make it a fairly... Uh, effective gastric tract, almost a sedative and and, uh, helps with digestion, that type of thing. It could be uh, made into a tea and consumed, not particularly good tasting, apparently, fairly bitter. But that was the other major use for indigo. Why did the indigo market eventually collapse and what impact did that have in the area? It ends up collapsing for a combination, really, of of factors that that lead to its collapse, but primarily the wars, the revolution, the main piece of that. Uh, With the revolution, there is the the outbreak of the revolution in the colonies. There is the prohibition of exports to Britain. Anything that could potentially help the English was essentially prohibited from being shipped to them. The uh, English embargo on American goods at the end of the war, the expiration of the bounty, of both the imperial indigo bounty, obviously, and the state indigo bounty. So another factor was the increase in the flow of indigo from French and Spanish colonies in the West Indies. And probably the biggest factor of all was that when the war comes to an end in America, And the British Parliament actually votes in 1782 to end the military effort in the American colonies. All of Britain's armed forces that had been contending in America now are kind of shifted over to the unrest in India. And the attention of Britain starts focusing on India, not just to continue and complete its subjugation as a colony, but also to plumb the resources that were coming from India, in many cases coming from India with greater ease than they were coming from the American colonies. So all of those things combined together to to cause the indigo market to collapse. And what happens is it's, it's essentially a crash almost overnight because of the years of war. Indigo production comes to a to a screeching halt. Following the war, there's a similar resulting depression economically, a destitution financially for people who had formerly been incredibly wealthy, the collapse of law and order to a great degree. So that, you know, in the Hilton Head area, for instance, which was still very much an outlying part of the colony at that point, the highwaymen and, and Criminals of various sorts are kind of robbing and and roaming with impunity, trying to find things of value from the people who were formerly so wealthy that they were about the only ones left that might have things of value. So they had this incredibly lawless period that results at the end of that end of the market collapse. So it was extremely impactful for South Carolina and especially for the Sea Islands of South Carolina because they had been the primary growers of indigo 
and the growers of indigo in large quantities. We've talked about rice a little bit, and we've talked about indigo extensively. There was another crop that was pretty prevalent back then, and that was Sea Island cotton. What can you tell us about that industry, and where did that grow? Yeah, I mean, the timing of the successful growth of Sea Island cotton uh, really is what saves the destitution of the planters of indigo. Sea Island cotton is believed to have come from uh, some seeds from the island of Anguilla, and it was first imported into the colonies in Georgia, actually. And the fledgling states now of Georgia and South Carolina started experimenting with these seeds that had come in and trying to grow them. And initially, it was tough to grow Sea Island cotton well in the soil of the Sea Islands. But in 1788, a man in Georgia on St. Simon's Island actually uh, was able to successfully grow a crop of Sea Island cotton. And he learned a couple of valuable things. It didn't grow well without a little bit of help, some form of, of fertilizer, let's say. And secondly, it was important that when the cotton was cleaned of its seeds and the husks of the bowls, that the best seeds were set aside and kept for the next crop. And so that information was passed along to a planter on Edisto Island, a man named William Elliott. And William Elliott had just purchased land on Hilton Head Island, about a thousand acres of land. And so he used the thousand acres of land at his plantation called Myrtle Bank, which is in today's Hilton Head plantation, to um, experiment with Sea Island cotton growing. And he did it quite successfully. And so from 1790 on, Sea Island cotton grows as a, a main cash crop of the colony. I would say it was grown on the Sea Islands, which was the place that it grew the best. It didn't grow inland uh, well at all. Uh, inland, they would still grow uh, another kind of cotton that was called green seed cotton or upland cotton. Had a much coarser fiber, a much shorter fiber, uh, nowhere near as, as valuable. Sea Island cotton was very long fibered and relatively easy to clean whereas the green seed cotton was short-fibered and difficult to clean because the seeds were fuzzy. And in 1793, the cotton gin comes along. Eli Whitney invents it in Savannah. And so seed extraction from the short-fibered cotton is greatly uh, simplified. It didn't work as well for the long-fibered cotton. It just still required more of the sorting and cleaning by hand. But because largely the cotton gin allowed the processing of greater volumes of uh, green seed cotton. It also freed up slaves to work on the long-fibered Sea Island cotton well. And so from like 1793 to 1800, the volume of cotton that was produced by the, the state of South Carolina expanded from about 94,000 pounds in 1793, three years after it had first been successfully grown, to about 20 million pounds by 1800. And by 1810, it was up at 40 million pounds. And obviously, the need for the, the labor source to cultivate and process the cotton crop led to another major importation of slaves into South Carolina. How long did the Sea Island cotton industry last? Did it run all the way up to the Civil War? It did. It, it lasted up to the Civil War, and, and Sea Island cotton continued to be grown uh, some after the Civil War, but it never you know, was not able to be grown at the, on the scale that had been grown before 
largely due to the fact that the economics of the equation were no longer as uh, favorable. Um, the labor was now costly as opposed to free. And at about the same time, you had the the incursion from other parts of the world of a long fibered cotton that was similar to the Sea Island cotton that came from America. And so those factors kind of combined to depress the the cotton growth in this area. But, you know, there's there still was some grown. And from about 1872 to 1900, uh, the Port Royal Sound area had three major export crops or three major crops that were produced in this area and shipped other places. And cotton was still one of them. What were the other two? Oh, the other two were lumber and phosphate for a short period of time. Were there any of the, we've talked about three primary crops, your rice, the Sea Island cotton and indigo tobacco, I'm sure was somewhat prevalent around the area. Was there anything else that was grown in the area? I'm assuming there were quite a bit of food crops that were grown also. Sure. The, yeah. I mean, so tobacco was primarily grown in the in the Midlands and the upcountry. And that actually turned out to be as well as was green seed cotton. And that those turned out to be major crops for South Carolina for for many, many years. And even in the, in the 1900s, in the 1930s and 40s, uh, soybeans uh, started to become a significant field crop for South Carolina. But they were, I mean, rice, indigo, and Sea Island cotton were very much the major cash crops for South Carolina, both as a colony and then as a fledgling state, really up until the Civil War. Were South Carolina and the coastal area of Georgia pretty unique in what could be grown there? Because you get into Florida, it gets very hot. You go north and it's not subtropical anymore once you start getting through North Carolina and into Virginia. Did that provide South Carolina and the coastal area of Georgia a very unique opportunity to produce some of these crops? There's no doubt. Um, because it's something about the, the the character of the climate and the soil that's typically found in these barrier islands and in the way they formed over the years that made made the soil especially conducive on the sea islands to to indigo and sea island cotton. You can go 40 miles inland and you're not going to find the ability to grow any of those. In fact, even 20 miles inland, you wouldn't be able to grow good sea island cotton or good indigo. Rich, thank you so much for your time and your insight. Jay, my pleasure, as always. Thanks. 